Boker Tov, everyone. Welcome to the Aliyah Day. I am glad to be with you. It is a beautiful day in our neighborhood here, and I hope you're doing well. This is the Aliyah Day, and Aliyah Day keeps the Yetzirah away. It is a time of joy, a time of uh, drawing close to Hashem, and I'm glad that all of you are with me and having a great, uh, an amazing day. And uh, hope so. Hope you're doing that. Uh, hope everything's working out for you uh, so far, and that uh, you're being blessed. Baruch Hashem. I am being blessed. I'm glad to be here. It is uh, a good day. Things are happening, and life is going on. Uh, we have a mikvah. Uh, the mikvah is uh, dedication of the mikvah is going to happen this Sunday, by the way, um, at two o'clock in the afternoon, and so we're making preparations for that to have the official. Uh, dedication and ribbon cutting, and and it's going to be a very wonderful and spiritual time, and it's uh, just amazing. We've shared pictures on the uh, Sar Shalom uh, Facebook page, as well as the Lapid Facebook page of the mikvah. Just trying to get um, that out there. It's very uh, well. It's one thing to have a mikvah, right? It's it's uh, to have a mikvah is just amazing. But we happen to be in the uh, very blessed circumstance that we have the first kosher mikvah for a synagogue that believes in Yeshua um, in modern history. I would say 2,000 years, but I, I think that it's possible that uh, there were groups uh, between you know the first century and today that were Jewish, that were uh, like Lapid Judaism, that believed in Messiah Yeshua, and I. I I suspect that maybe they had a mikvah of some kind, perhaps. But in modern history, in the last, oh, I don't know, few hundred years, uh, there has not been a community that believed in Yeshua the Messiah that has had, has even desired, has wanted to use, had had any use for a kosher mikvah. I'm not talking about a baptismal, a tub of water to uh, be baptized in the and the Trinity, God forbid, but I'm talking about a mikvah. So this is just amazing. It's just incredible. And so um, I don't think that we even know, even those of us who are close to the project and have been uh, deep in it, pun intended, uh, from the beginning, uh, really appreciate just how monumental uh, it is. It is just uh, astounding. So uh, in any case, we are looking at the fourth aliyah of our parasha Naso, and uh, yesterday I inadvertently had read into the fourth aliyah, which is not so good, um, but I <laughs> found that out and decided to uh, cease and desist and go back to some insights. So I apologize for that. I don't I think that's the first time I may have done that, but I overlooked, uh, ran over the fourth Aliyah notation like a speed bump. But if we go back to the fourth Aliyah, let me see here where we are going to, to find ourselves uh, reading. It's going to be in the uh, fifth chapter, I believe it was where we left off, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, we're going to be reading in verse 23. I think that's where we left off yesterday for the fourth Aliyah. So if you have your art school Chumash, we are going to be um, on page 757. 
By the way, welcome everybody. I think I've seen I have seen this morning a couple of new names. And so we welcome everybody who's watching from coast to coast, from across the world, and uh, our friends in Antarctica. Anybody from Ireland? If you're in Ireland out there, we want to know. Want to have some Irish, uh, some Irish people there? Make us feel lucky. All right, chapter five and verse twenty-three. Here it is: The Cohen shall inscribe these curses. We're talking here about the Sota, the woman who is suspected by her husband of having committed adultery. Um, I do, again, I spoke at length yesterday about a due process. This is one of those segments where um, it can appear very sexist. Uh, and it can appear that, uh, and this is, by the way, is a problem if you're one of those people out there that you've been taught to believe erroneously that that you want to be word of God only, that you're only the word of God. Well, if you come to this and you're word of God only, and you don't have the, the understanding of the oral Torah and the due process that was um, uh, that was implemented by the, the Sanhedrin, okay, there was a lot of safeguards put into this. In other words, it, as I said yesterday, this wasn't a situation where a husband could just wake up one morning in a fit of jealousy and uh, accuse his wife of adultery, drag her down to the temple, and make her go through some humiliating uh, process. No, there had to be a lot that led up to that. And in fact, I want to add to that, that once the accusation has been made, then there have to be two Torah scholars present who will escort the man and his wife to the temple. And they have to be with the couple the whole time. And the reason for that is because at any point that the husband secludes himself with his wife, uh, the, uh, from the time that he made the accusation to the time that they get to the temple, at any point in between time, if he secludes himself with his wife for any reason, uh, the charges must immediately be dropped. And so the, the, the two Torah scholars are there as witnesses uh, to that effect. So there's lots of safeguards in there. But we've gotten to the point now where she's there and the, the Cohen has adjured her of the curse. If she's guilty, this is going to happen. And then he says, he shall inscribe these curses on a scroll and erase it in the bitter waters. It says, when he shall cause the woman to drink the bitter waters that cause a curse, then the waters that cause curse shall come into her for bitterness. The sages also point out that uh, the, the shalom bayit, the, the, the peace between a man and his wife, is so important that God allows, this is the only place really, where God allows his divine name to be erased. His divine name to be erased. He, you put the curse on the scroll, which includes the divine name, and then you erase that name in the waters, and the woman drinks the name. So it's very significant. God says, listen, I want to establish peace between a man and a wife so much that I'm allowing my divine name to be erased. It's the only time where this happens. Now, with that said, as an aside, and I throw this out there because people, as I often say, come to this channel, come to Lapid Judaism from all types of backgrounds. So some of those backgrounds are what we call Hebrew roots backgrounds. Uh, we affectionately call them Hebrew rooters. But in the Hebrew roots um, 
movement, which is actually has nothing to do with Torah at all, actually, its origins. Hebrew roots actually uh, comes from, really it comes more from us, the spawnation, if I can use that, make up a word. It's, it's the spawning of um, Seventh-day Adventist and, um, and Jehovah's Witness, which are both offshoots and cults from the cult of what was called Millerism, from the mid-1800s. Central to Hebrew roots, which is relevant to my comment here, central to Hebrew roots is the idea that you have to pronounce um, the divine name, that it's required to uh, pronounce the divine name. And um, if you don't pronounce the divine name, then somehow you're a sinner or what have you. And so they do things like... um, and by the way, that comes from those two cults I mentioned earlier. Uh, and all this is historic. It's not, it's not a matter of opinion. It's a fact. And so um, they do things like they'll put the, the Yudke Vavke divine name on a T-shirt. Um, they'll print it uh, on a hats. Um, you know, lots of mundane things like that. I've even heard i was at a conference one time and they were talking about this where they were printing the divine name on bars of soap so i just want you to think about how holy the divine name is and so you think well what's wrong with that i mean you got a t-shirt is it okay to say i believe in yudke vavke or whatever or or, uh uh, i'm a follower of yudke vavke you know whatever uh case me well okay well think about where when when you're I, I wear T-shirts from time to time, you know, I'm like working out or working in the lawn or whatever. What happens to those T-shirts? Well, you sweat, you get grime on it, um, uh, whatever. And then, then what do you do? You take that T-shirt off and you throw it into laundry with all the other laundry, uh, all the other solid clothes. And and uh, so now what do you have? Now you have the Yudke Vavke, the most holy name in the entire universe, is now sullied with sweat and grime, and it's in a nasty uh, uh, pile of nasty, dirty clothes, being drugged through all kind of mundane places through the house. That's just one thing. So you got to think about those kind of things. Is the point I'm trying to make? Is that the non-Jewish world? It it is what it is. It's not necessarily a slight, but the non-Jewish world has generally not been taught the idea of sanctity. The idea of sanctification, what it means to be sanctified and to sanctify things. That's just not something that's taught. It's not even taught um, uh, in the church world, of course. Uh, you know, you, you, you people are t- trained nowadays to come into church wearing, uh, you know, shorts and flip-flops, uh, a kickback in the pew um, with their uh, blueberry scone and Starbucks coffee. And, um, you know, that kind of thing. That's just the, that's, that's the way life is. So, Contrast that with the idea that the only place, the only time at which uh, one is allowed to erase the divine name, which is why, by the way, we don't write it uh, when we're like using a chalkboard, or, or we don't write it um, usually when we when you're just writing a, a note or something like that, because we don't want to erase it, right? And so this contrasts what I just said compared to this and how and, and the sanctity therein. Again, all of this is just for food for thought and and how to better um, protect holy things. 
So it says, the Kohen shall take the meal offering of jealousies from the hand of the woman. He shall wave the meal offering before Adonai, and he shall offer it on the altar. The Kohen shall scoop up from the meal offering its remembrance and cause it to go up and smoke on the altar, after which he shall cause the woman to drink the water. He shall cause her to drink the water, and it shall be that if he shall, if she should become defiled and had committed treachery against her husband, the waters that cause curse shall come into her for bitterness, and her stomach shall be distended, and her thigh shall collapse, and the woman shall become a curse amid her people. But if the woman had not become defiled, and she is pure, then she shall be proven innocent, and she shall bear uh, seed. This is the law of jealousy, when a woman shall go astray with someone other than her husband, and become defiled, or of a man over whom possesses, or passes rather, a spirit of jealousy, and he warns his wife. Now, the, the warning here, if, I'm, if, I, if my count is correct, I believe this is the third time where it's been said, been stated in, in the Torah, that he has to have warned his wife. And again, it's not a general warning. It's not like, hey, honey, be sure you don't ever commit adultery, okay? No, it has to be with uh, a specific warning. And so um, it says, and he causes his wife to stand before Adonai, the Kohen shall carry out for her this entire law. The man will be innocent of iniquity, but the woman shall bear uh, her iniquity. All right, chapter 6. Now we get into chapter 6. Um, it says in verse 1, Adonai spoke to Moshe saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, excuse me, and say to them, a man or woman who shall disassociate himself by taking a Nazarite vow of abstinence for the sake of Adonai. Now, this is obviously going to get into the laws of the Nazarite. I want to say from the outset, as we begin to look at these laws, and we'll share more insights on this uh, at other times. Um, first of all, uh, some of some uh, at least at least someone during the course of my tenure has asked me this. Yeshua was, was from Nazareth, but he was not a Nazarite. The Messiah was not a Nazarite, number one. Number two, a lot of people think that being a Nazarite is somehow a higher level. That if you can live a you know, fasted life, you've heard, you, you, I've heard that term I used in Christian circles way back a thousand years ago when I was a part of the Christian world, you know, everybody was like, live a fasted life. Um, kind of like living like a monk in a way, right? So the idea ingrained within the psyche is that to be a Nazarite is actually, that's a high level. To live a fasted life is like huh, very spiritual. As it turns out, it's the exact opposite. Yeah. Um, it, as it turns out, the sages bring down that the person who's living the life of a Nazarite, think about who's a Nazarite. Who's the most favorite Na Nazarite in the Bible? Anybody? Do, 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 do. That's right. Somebody said Samson. The most famous Nazarite in the Bible is Samson. Was Samson highly spiritual? Nope. Um, as it turns out, the person who takes a Nazarite vow does so because they are weak. 
and therefore to become a Nazarite was, according to the sages, permissible. It was honorable, but it was also a sign of weakness. Moreover, it's actually forbidden in Judaism to... Well, I don't want to say forbidden, because obviously the Nazarite vow is part of Torah. Um, so it's not necessarily forbidden, but it's not advised. It's, it's, it's looked down upon. It's like, you know, not good to forbid to yourself something that the Torah permits. So... Um, but but I, I should emphasize it's not forbidden, but it's not considered good. Like you're, God allows us something, and we should enjoy it, and we should enjoy it responsibly, like drink responsibly, but and all those kinds of things, right? So the person who takes a Nazarite vow, this is my main point, is I want to say it's very important because it's a misnomer out there. If you t- you say, well, I'm a Nazarite because I'm so holy, 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 as it turns out, no, 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 you're not. Which is why you took the Nazarite vow. Um, can you be a Nazarite today? Mm, Halakhically, some people would say you can. Um, but I would say no. Uh, because if you took the Nazarite vow today, you would pretty much have to be a Nazarite for the rest of your life. Why? Because you cannot cease being a Nazarite unless there's a temple. Um, there's a lot to the Nazarite vow. We're going to be reading here in just a second, but some, most of it, people have no. First of all, people have no clue what the Nazarite is. They they haven't the foggiest idea. They think it means growing your hair long and not drinking wine. They don't realize that you can't have a grape jelly or grape jam or raisins or anything that has grape in it to include grape juice um, at all ever. And so, um, so yeah, there's that. Um, so anyway, uh, Nazarite vow wouldn't work for me anyway because I can't really grow hair. I'm, I was kidding. That's not, you don't have to, it's a joke. But anyway, uh, verse 3. From new or aged wine shall he abstain, and he shall not drink vinegar of wine. Well, there you go. Can't do that. No balsamic vinegar for you. Could never have a, a Capri salad. Said or vinegar of aged wine, anything in which grapes have been steeped, shall he not drink? So, you know, you couldn't have anything that had anything to do at all to do with grapes, on any level, to include, as I said, raisins. So no, um, no chocolate coated raisins. You couldn't go see a movie. Some of y'all will get that in a second. It says, and 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 uh, fresh and dried grapes shall he not eat, and all the days of his abstinence, anything made from wine, grapes, or even the pips or skin, he shall not eat. Which um, I think I, I I could be wrong about this because I don't wear cosmetics, contrary to popular belief. Um, but I think that sometimes. Um, Things uh, from grape are in cosmetics. Uh, I could be wrong about that, and ladies, y'all can correct me. Um, but just my point is, those kind of things you'd have to be careful of as well. You say, well, cosmetics, you're not, eat- you're not eating cosmetics. Well, I mean, this is why lipstick ha- needs to be kosher. Because you put it on your lips. I don't use lipstick. Um, but you put it on your lips and you know, you're going to eat it. 
because it's on your lips. So this is all the days of the Nazarite vow, a razor shall not pass over his head until the completion of the days that he will become a Nazarite for the sake of Adonai. Holy, holy, holy shall he be. I added those two holies. The growth of hair on his head shall grow all the days of his abstinence for the sake of Adonai. He shall not come near a dead person. So um, if you're a Nazarite, you couldn't go to a funeral of any kind. Which, you know, may not be a big deal, um, but if you decided to become a Nazarite today, which is not advisable, I don't, I don't personally don't really think you it's really able to, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, you could never go to a funeral ever again. So, it says, to his father or to his mother, to his brother or his sister, he shall not contaminate himself to them upon their death, for the crown of his God is upon his head. All the days of his abstinence he is holy to Adonai. If a person shall die near him with quick suddenness and contaminate the Nazarite head, he shall shave his head on the day he becomes purified. On the seventh day he shall shave it. On the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young doves to the Kohen to the entrance of the tent um, of meeting. So again, this is one of the reasons why I say, and I, again, I've read halakhic opinions that one could be a Nazarite today, but um, as it's saying here, if you if you just happen to be walking down the street one day and you're minding your own business and somebody dies suddenly, and God forbid, has a heart attack and just dies right in front of you, um, you, you know, you have to shave every every hair, every single hair, um, and then you have to bring two turtle doves to the Cohen to the entrance of the tent of meeting. The only problem with that is there's not a tent of meeting anymore. So there's that. So it says the Cohen shall make one as a sin offering and one as an elevation offering, and he shall provide him atonement for having sinned regarding the person, and he shall sanctify his head on that day. He shall dedicate to Adonai the days of his abstinence, and he shall bring a sheep in his first year for a guilt offering. The first day shall fall aside, for his abstinence shall be contaminated. This shall be the law of the Nazarite. On the day his abstinence is completed, he shall bring himself to the entrance of the tent of meeting. He shall bring his offering to Adonai, one unblemished sheep in its first year as an elevation offering, an unblemished ewe in its first year as a sin offering, and one unblemished ram as a peace offering, a basket of unleavened loaves, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. On their meal offering and on their libations, a Kohen shall approach before Adonai and perform the service of the sin offering and his elevation offering. He shall make a ram a feast peace offering for Adonai with a basket of unleavened bread, and the Kohen shall make its meal offering and its libation. Um, I should, something top of my head as I was reading this too is that uh, one of the reasons why this is considered lotov is, again, it's permitted. Torah makes allowance for it. But we're really not supposed to be making vows. Um, we, we really, which, which is intriguing, by the way, because as I've been doing these vow renewals, so to speak, which is probably a poor choice of words for people that are going to the mikvah, couples that are going to the mikvah, being going through conversion, they're coming up and we are standing under the hoopah. I've, uh, as I've been preparing for those and looking at them more, I, listen, I've done, I have performed dozens of weddings in my tenure. Um, but I, I find it intriguing that a traditional Jewish wedding does not include vows as the traditional non-Jewish weddings do. Just as an aside, this is just a food for thought. 
the man says to the woman, I sanctify you to myself. And she says back to him, that's awesome. I love you. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> and uh, that's it. There aren't any other vows that are made at a traditional ceremony. And I, I just I took note of that recently um, in relationship to the idea that we shouldn't be making a vow. Uh, it's just something to think about. It's just interesting. And then we, we find that here with the Nazarite. So it says, At the entrance of the tent of meeting, the Nazarite shall shave his Nazarite head. He shall take the hair of his Nazarite head and put it on the fire that is under the... Uh, I'm sorry. And put it on the fire that is under the feast peace offering. The Kohen shall take the cooked foreleg of the ram and the unleavened loaf from the basket and one unleavened wafer and place them on the, the palms of the Nazarite after he had shaved his Nazarite hair. The Kohen shall wave them as a wave service before Adonai. It shall be holy for the Kohen, aside from the breast of the wave and the thigh and the raising up. Afterwards, the Nazarite may drink wine. So if there's a temple, typically um, you have a, a Nazarite was a Nazarite only for a, a particular period of time. And there's different reasons why one would become a Nazarite. But again, from a Jewish point of view, the highest level of spirituality is to simply follow God's law, uh, excuse me, Torah, to, to uh, allow to yourself what is allowed and to forbid to yourself what is strictly forbidden by Torah law, and not to make distinctions one or uh, or the other. Now, um, I mentioned during the all-night Torah study, there's people who choose to be vegetarians, pardon me, or vegans. And there's people who don't drink. You know, they don't, they don't like to drink for whatever reason. That's perfectly fine. That That's just personal preference. That's personal taste. I would only suggest in either category, whether it's uh, vegetarian or you're abstaining from alcohol or, or maybe you're abstaining from something else. I don't know what something else. I can't think of any good examples off the top of my head. But I would only suggest that if that's your personal choice because, you know, whatever reason, it's your personal choice, great. Just don't make it a higher spiritual plane. In other words... Don't say to somebody, well, I don't drink alcohol because, well, you know, I've been in the cloud. No, you just don't, there's nothing wrong. So the guy who drinks um, a little Jim Bean every now and then is just as holy as you are. And I'm just saying, because we have a tendency when we have a conviction about something for whatever reason, or we just don't like it. We have a tendency to think that because we have abstained for something that's permitted, that somehow we're on a higher level, and that isn't true. And so uh, with Judaism, as it says in this uh, very often, that Judaism is the middle road. It's, it's taking everything in moderation. Those things that are permitted, of course, in moderation. If something's forbidden, it's forbidden. Um, Verse 21. This is the law of the Nazarite who shall pledge his offering to Adonai for his abstinence. Aside from, from what can he can afford according to his vow that he has pledged, so shall he do in addition to the law of his abstinence. Incidentally, based on everything I've just said, I keep interrupting myself, but forgive me. Um, based on everything I've said, 
thus far about this topic, I want you to consider something. Paul took a Nazarite vow. Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, So shall you bless the children of Israel, saying to them. Now this is the, the Birkat Kohanim. And it says, May Adonai bless you and safeguard you. Right? Well, this is familiar. May Adonai illuminate his counts for you and be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance upon you, Shalom, and establish peace for you. And it says, Let them place my name upon the children of Israel, and I shall bless them. That is the end of the fourth Aliyah, which ended up being uh, kind of long. There was all kinds of um, insights here. How shall I conclude in, the, in the, just the minute we have left? Um, I'll tell you what, there's so much to share. I'm going to try to jump right into all of this tomorrow, but let me share this one thing that I found intriguing. Uh, this is talking about the person who's caught, uh, thieving. And it says that he shall add a fifth to it. It's interesting because this is one of those areas that is also a misunderstanding. It's like if you get caught in theft, then you must add a fifth to it. And I have heard this back a thousand years ago when I was in the church world, because I came from more of a charismatic church world. And back then you had people who waxed eloquently and said, when the devil, when you catch the devil with your stuff, you got to tell him, devil, devil, you got to give me a fifth added to it. That's how we used to talk back then. I'm making that up. And um, I'm not sure why we used to talk like that, but that's how we, <laughs> that's how we used to talk. What's funny about it, again, this is, it's just funny to me because once you get into like uh, oral tradition and oral Torah, you find out that what you believe is the exact opposite, as it was so many things. It says, the law expressed by Rambam is that a fifth is added only, say only, only by one who admits his wrongdoing voluntarily. Why? Because it says, amazingly, the person who has repented and has admitted his sin must add the fifth in addition to restoration in full, while the unrepentant person pays back only the sum. This apparent paradox is resolved when we note that the extra fifth and the associated sacrifice of a guilt offering are not punishments by means, but means of absolution. In other words, adding the fifth is not a punishment. Like, you have to pay me, devil, the fifth you owe me. No, it's not a punishment. The fifth was actually part of the sacrifice to bring restitution and absolution. Furthermore, Rambam teaches that the asham absolves only those who have repented. Thus, if the sinner does not change his attitude and show his sincere desire to redeem himself, neither the offering nor the extra fifth is of the slightest value. So one adds the fifth only if they have voluntarily repented and that fifth becomes atonement money. End of our Aliyah today. We'll be back tomorrow. We have uh, lots more to share. We're out of time, but not out of content. Everybody have a beautiful, amazing, and wonderful day. I look forward to seeing everybody tomorrow, uh, and it'll be awesome. So Shalom Aleichem. Have a great day.